And my wife doesn't count. She can't answer because she read my notes. It was the 76th anniversary of D-Day, right? June 6, 1944. Uh, a little, a little uh, tidbit on what happened there, there was over 150,000 troops that were involved in that, 6,330 ships, 10,440 aircraft, of those there was almost 4,000 fighters, 4,400 bombers, 1,370 air transport, and the craziest idea of the whole thing was there were 670 gliders. You, they, they would take these super lightweight gliders and they would hook them behind these bigger planes and people would stuff in them or they'd put equipment in them and they would take off and they would tow those gliders across the English Channel and uh, somewhere in the midst there, when they got closer to their destination, they would cut the cord and of course there was a pilot. They, they, they were manned, you guys know that. And the, Anyway, the, so the pilot would take and uh, fly that glider I've heard a lot of stories. I, I tried to dig in and find out if it was true or not. Uh, um, of course, in... I'm not sure if this is true or not. In the Band of Brothers, they said, in that movie, they said that they put, when there was um, officers on board of those gliders, they put steel plates on the bottom so that the anti-aircraft artillery wouldn't take out their officers. And uh, those gliders <laughs> didn't glide. When they cut the rope, uh, they sank like there was a hole in the bottom of the boat. I don't know if that's true or not, but um, that would have been the last place I would want to be is in a glider. Wow, 120 warships, 3,500 troop carriers, 500 cargo carriers, 100 destroyers, 1,200 merchant vessels, 250 minesweepers, 600 specialist craft. That was all on the water. Almost 130,000 soldiers landed 1,200 vehicles, 1,550 tanks, 23,400 23, airborne troopers parachuted in. And of course, there was 14,000 casualties that day or within that event. It's an amazing feat taken on by a multitude of countries, many of which I'll list here in a little bit. But the reality is, is that in America, we love our freedom. So we celebrate these types of events as painful as they were in our past. We love our freedom, right? Don't you guys love your freedom? Yeah. Amen. We celebrate it. There's like three, at least three holidays that, that, that revolve around our freedom. We fight for it, obviously. We argue and we protest for it. We worry that we're losing it. We look around at other countries and we are grateful that we have it. If you've been to other countries, you know there's a stark, stark difference in places in the world where it's just not the same. Statistically, we have had it the longest. The U.S. ranks number one by a long shot of the oldest democracies. 231 years if you figure that the Constitution went into effect in 1789. Of course, we started gaining that much earlier than that. But we're the only democracy in mankind of all of history that existed before 1800. The only one. So we rank number, two, number one in the age of democracy. Number two, of course, is Switzerland. They've had a democracy, 172s. Number three is actually New Zealand. Fun fact about New Zealand is they were actually the first country... Uh, to allow women to vote. But they've been a democracy 163 years. Canada, just to the north of us, eh? Can I get an A? Not an amen, but can I get an A? A? I never... <laughs> it makes me think of playing baseball as in Little League. We went up there for a tournament, and I kept wondering, and I was asking my mom, and I was like, what are they saying? And uh, they're saying A, eh? 153 years they've been a democracy, and of course the UK, United Kingdom, of who we uh, battled back into the water, uh, it took them about 100 years after we got our independence to figure out, hey, those guys had got a pretty good system over there. So they've been a democracy for 133 years. 
But we love our freedom. In fact, it's our freedoms or lack thereof sometimes that have been at the center of the national and local debate, both for this COVID-19 pandemic and also, and I want to carefully categorize this for the peaceful protest that's going on in regards to George Floyd's death. It's our freedoms that are always at that center. And our founding fathers believed that mankind could and would prosper best in a free, mark that word, in a free and godly society as we followed Christ. As we followed Christ. One such founder wrote these words. His name is Elias Boudinot. A little on him. He was the president of Congress. He signed the peace treaty at the end of the American Revolution. He was the first attorney admitted to the U.S. Supreme Court bar. He was one of the framers of the Bill of Rights, and he was also the director of the U.S. Mint. And he was quoted as saying this. He says, and before I get there, if you ever wonder what the genesis was for having a clergyman come to Congress and pray every single morning as they start their business in Washington, D.C. It's this guy's idea. He said this, he says, let us, enter, <clears throat> let us enter on this important business under the idea that we are Christians on whom the eyes of the world are now turned. Let us earnestly call and beseech Him, God, for Christ's sake, to preside in our councils. We can only depend on all of the powerful influence of the Spirit of God whose divine aid and assistance it becomes us as a Christian people most devoutly to implore. Therefore, I move that some minister of the gospel, notice that real carefully how that's worded, I th therefore, I move that some minister of the gospel, not just any minister, but some minister of the gospel be requested to attend this Congress every morning in order to open the meeting with prayer. That's how they viewed their freedom. That's how they viewed their freedom. I'm using all this to build up to where we're going to be today in looking at the idea of freedom. The same guy in a letter to his daughter. So that was an address to Congress, but now this is a personal address taken from one of his letters. He's, Elias says this to his daughter. He says, you've been instructed from your childhood in the knowledge of your lost state by nature. The absolute necessity of a change of heart and an entire renovation of soul to the image of Jesus Christ. Of salvation through His meritorious righteousness only. And the indispensable necessity of personal holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. He inscribed Hebrews 12.14 there. You are well acquainted that the most perfect and consummate doctrinal knowledge is of no avail without it operates on and sincerely affects the heart, changes the practice, and totally influences the will. And that without the almighty power of the Spirit of God, enlightening your mind, subduing your will, and continually drawing you to Himself, you can do nothing. And may the God of your parents, for many generations past, seal instruction to your soul and lead you to Himself through the blood of his too greatly despised son, who notwithstanding is still reclaiming the world to God through that blood, not imputing to them their sins, to him be glory forever. Wow, what an address to one of your kids, right? What a, what a stage to set for the generations below him. And, and as we read this, we can take this and springboard it into the generations that are underneath us. It's a great, great read. As we've been studying through this series on what it means to be stronger in our faith, how does God use different aspects of our faith and, and different aspects of, of, our, uh, of our life with Him to make us stronger in our faith today and actually for a few weeks, we're going to be camped in Romans 8. And today, the word I want to look at is the word freedom. God uses freedom in our lives. And oftentimes as parents, we have a tendency to fear freedom in the next generation. Right? Parents, you'll be like, eh, yeah, that's right. 
That's right. It's like, what's going to happen? Uh, what's going to happen when your oldest kid gets a driver's license and heads out the driveway for the very first time? What's going to happen? There's freedom and responsibility tied together there. But how are they going to handle that freedom? Right? How are they going to handle that freedom? Uh, it's, a difficult, it's a difficult time. It's a difficult, difficult time to be a teen. Uh, to be a young adult, it's a difficult time. Kids, it's a difficult time for your parents. Because all that they've taught and trained you will come to bear in those moments. Everything's tight. We're good. Just ignore the static. Right? But they're going to be free. Hey, parents, they're going to be free. If you, if you don't have any teenagers, you're a parent. Your kids, are, at some point, are going to be free. They're going to be free to make choices. They're going to be free to get a job. They're going to be free to pay their own bills. Yes? Amen. Lots of amens. We're starting to push some buttons. They're going to be free to pay their own bills. They're going to be free to buy a car. They're going to be free to buy a house. How are we training them up in that freedom? How are we training them up in that freedom? Freedom, biblically, has actually little to do with the physical and everything to do with the spiritual. That's maybe a little bit of a stretch. Let's put it this way. Let's rephrase that statement. Freedom, biblically, starts in the spiritual but it affects the physical. To understand what God's plan for freedom is, we need to turn to the greatest chapter. I'm going to phrase it this way. I've heard it phrased this way, and I agree with it. We're going to open up to the greatest chapter in the Bible. Shout it out one more time. That whoever believes in Him shall what? Not perish, but have everlasting life. We teach, this is the very first verse as a little tiny kid downstairs that they're going to learn. It's, it's, uh, it's the greatest verse in the Bible. But I want to propose to you today that Romans chapter 8 is the greatest chapter in the Bible. Romans chapter 8 is the greatest chapter in the Bible, and we're going to camp there. As I said earlier, we're going to camp there for a couple of weeks. Romans chapter 8 contains some of the best verses and often quoted uh, verses in the Bible, like Romans 8.28 on God's sovereignty. And we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, those who are called according to His purpose. Or perhaps uh, when we're looking at God's unfailing love, Romans 8.35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Maybe combining those two thoughts and, and thinking in regard of God's control over our lives. Maybe Romans 8.37 and 39 are the verses that oftentimes you've leaned on. I know I have. Verse 37 starts out and says, Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I used to have a t-shirt that had this you know, kind of a comical, uh, uh, it had that verse and it had all of these, you know, little bits and pieces of all of those thoughts that Paul wrapped up in there, all those things that, that aren't going to separate us from God's love, that aren't going to pull us away from God's love when we're in Christ. All these are great verses. Um, they're actually more towards the back of the chapter. We're going to start off at the beginning of the chapter. But they're great verses that we've learned, that we've quoted that we've leaned on in tough times. We're going to start up at the beginning of Romans chapter 8 because I think verse 1, verse 1 of Romans 8 is the most liberating statement uh, that we can read in reality. It's the most liberating statement. So turn with me there, Romans chapter 8. Uh, flip there on your phone or open the pages of your Bible or I think they'll be on the screen. 
Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Paul's been building this case. A little summary of the first seven chapters of Romans. He's been building this case. And here he turns to a corner, turns this corner in, in his thought process. Speaking of building a case, actually, for years and years and years in law school, the book of Romans was used as an example of how to properly present a case in court. Probably not so much anymore, but for a lot of years at the beginning of our country, this, this book was used as a, as a standard by which to present a case. And so in that case... The Apostle Paul makes this, bends around a corner as he starts chapter 8 and says, therefore, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. There's freedom for God's people that are in Christ. There's freedom for God's people. No condemnation. How many of us feel like sometimes we are constantly under some condemnation. Wherever that source may come from in, in your life, we feel like there's always this, this heavy weight. And sometimes it's because, frankly, and I know this is true for me, I watch too much news. So I'm thinking, man, things are horrible. And it pushes down on you. It, it presses down on your life, this idea that, that everything is just that bad. And I'm not saying that everything's always great. I'm just saying that we feel this weight, condemnation. Maybe it's the weight that we feel about our faith or, or the worldview and the moral values that we hold up in society and those come under a, a pushback. And so we feel, in a sense, condemned in our own culture. Maybe it's a racial or cultural thing. But for those that are in Christ, there's no condemnation. Notice that key phrase, it's all through chapter 8, the Apostle Paul uses this word, in, in, for those in Christ, in the Spirit. Back and forth he goes. Synonymous with one another, the word in Christ or in the Spirit is the premise for the whole turn of the case, the whole argument. And essentially he makes a case on on. On two ideas. He gives two competing views. There at the end of verse 1. First one. Those that are according to the flesh. And those that are according to the spirit. In contrast with one another. One of the great things about Jewish literature. uh, The Psalms or Proverbs. Much of the Old Testament in in that regard. Is that they're. Their literature was based oftentimes on two contrasting ideas. So in Proverbs, you'll see something about uh, a verse. I can't pull one off the top of my head, but the foolish and the wise, right? The foolish and the wise. The foolish and the, the fool does this, the wise person does that, or vice versa. So it's a contrast. And Paul kind of picks up on that same thread of idea here in chapter 8 when he talks about those that walk according to the flesh and those that walk according to the spirit. A small commercial break from Sesame Street. Today's sermon is brought to you by the letter P. For those of us that watch Sesame Street as a kid, you'll know what I'm talking about. There's three P traps Oh, you can laugh. Go ahead. Let her go. There's three P-traps that go with the idea of walking according to the flesh. Three P-traps that, uh, that, they all start with the letter P. You guys get that, right? You're probably watching it on the screen. This is why I need a screen on the stage. It's coming. Don't worry about it. But three P-traps. The first one, the first one is a performance Christianity. We can be tempted and trapped into this idea of performance Christianity. It's a trap of the flesh. A great way to describe it is that we earn our way by trying to work hard for God's love, His time, His attention, 
and His blessing. That we're working hard for it. That we're doing all we can can. Man, alive. I, I, I'm serving. I'm being a blessing to my neighbors. I'm in ministry. I'm, I'm here. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. And the basis behind it is, is that if we don't do those things, guess what? God's not going to love us. He's not going to like me if I don't serve him. And it's a performance trap that's so easily, easily slipped into. It's a trap of the flesh. It will be disappointing in the end. It will be destructive in the end. The second one on the list, and these are all kind of similar. There's a lot of bleed over between the three that I wrote down. But the second trap is this. It's pretending Christianity. We fake our way. We blend in with the church crowd. It's all about appearance. It doesn't matter. Nothing matters what happened on the way here. But when we get here, it looks different. When we get here, we flip a switch. When we're around other believers, we flip a switch. We're pretending. We're pretending to be a believer. There's no consistency to our faith regardless of our circumstance. The only consistency that we have is we, is we try to keep these two camps separated so they don't intermingle, so these people don't know what I'm doing over here and these people don't know what we're doing over here. And I'll tell you what, as a teenager, I was a master at this. I thought I was. I thought I was. I thought I had this lady over here fooled completely on what I was doing on Friday and Saturday night. Awana kids, you cannot fool my mother. She's too smart for you. She was too smart for me, but she loved me anyway and prayed for me constantly. But as a teenager, I was a, I was a poster child for being hypocritical in our community. And I thought I had it all sorted out. And God wrecked that train, literally. Brought it all crashing down. The idea of pretending Christianity does not work. It will be disappointing. The third one is presumption Christianity. Presumption Christianity, what does that look like? It looks this way. It looks like believing that we're saved when in reality there's no life change, no growth, and no spiritual fruit. We believe that we're saved based upon something that a prayer perhaps that we prayed 20 years ago or the volume of prayers that we've prayed throughout the years. We, we, we hearken back to a time and the place. We talk about those days. It's all in the past. It's all a different life in reality. But currently, currently there's no fruit. Currently, there's no evidence of life change. Currently, there's no growth. The problem with P-traps is is that they're a little stinky. They smell like sin and death, according to the Apostle Paul here in chapter 8 of Romans. Verse 2 says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me, and here's our word, free. It's made us free. We can be free from these traps, right? We can be set free from the law of sin and death. It's interesting, if you've ever had the opportunity to watch a caged animal, and then somebody opens the door, oftentimes they don't don't take off. And it doesn't really matter if it's a wild animal, or if it's a domesticated animal. Uh, many of you know you, we used to have, uh, we used to raise Holstein replacement heifers, had cattle uh, the whole time growing up. And one of the biggest challenges there are is when you have cattle in a pen for a long period of time, getting them out of that into another pen 
is a hassle. It's a pain. And they'll just keep running the same fence line with an open gate on one end, and they'll just keep going back and running right in front of that open gate. No, 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 I'm not going. I, I can't go there. I can't go there. I'm trapped, right? They never jump out into freedom. They keep running on the same trail. But the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free. It's made us free. The word law there, don't get, don't get stumped on that. Uh, I, I want to put this idea in your mind that I think is, is uh, um, just enough of a switch away from the word law. Because when we think law, what do we think of? We think of the Ten Commandments. We think of the Old Testament law, right? Think of this word. Think of the word principle. Think of the word principle. So I'll reread it this way. So the principle of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the principle of sin and death. It's the second of three powerful promises for Christians. I told you it was brought to you by the letter P. Three powerful promises for Christians. The first one is is that Jesus on the cross sets us free from what? The penalty of sin. Jesus sets us free. The work on the cross sets us free from the penalty of sin. Romans 8 is actually the Christian's declaration of independence from sin. Let's look first at that freedom from the penalty. Verse 3, for what the law could could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Again, Paul is using this contrast between flesh and spirit, flesh and spirit, and the events that took place on Calvary, where it's Jesus who takes the sins of the worlds upon himself on the cross, though he was sinless himself, the perfect sacrifice, he paid the just penalty for our sins, past, present, and future. That righteous requirement of the law, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled. See, Jesus' atonement for sin requires, or atonement for sin in general, requires blood sacrifice from a perfect sacrifice. I love the way that Hebrews chapter 10 tells us that the repetitive cycle of, for sacrifices for sin was only a reminder. Hebrews 10, 4 says, For it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But Jesus came to do the Father's will by offering himself as a perfect, eternal offering. Verse 9 in Hebrews 10 says, Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Jesus' sacrifice for us on the cross cancels that penalty for sin. Number two, number two, and this is really where Romans 8 shines the brightest, although it does talk about the penalty of sin and Christ's work on the cross. But the second freedom from power, uh, <clears throat> the second is the freedom from the power of sin. Look back at Romans 8, chapter 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead <coughs> dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead 
will also give life to your mortal bodies. His spirit dwells in you. Six indicators that we have freedom from the power of sin. Six indicators that we have freedom from the power of sin. The first one found there in verse 5, that our minds are set on the things of the Spirit. That our minds are set on the things of the Spirit. It's what we're thinking about. It's how we process life. It's how we process tragedy. It's how we process everything when we're in Christ, when we're saved, when we're set free from the power of sin. We think differently, completely differently. Life, t- life takes on a whole new dimension. I don't know how many of you guys have followed in the news. There's some great news out there, by the way. I want to share a piece if you haven't already heard. How many people have watched the, the uh, it's not airing anymore, but how many people have either heard about or watched an episode or, like me, all the episodes of Duck Dynasty? Hands up, anybody? Robbie's got both hands up, right? Phil Robertson just found out a few months ago that he has an ex- another child, a daughter. See, before Phil came to Christ, when his oldest two sons, Al and Jace, were just little guys, Phil was still running wild by his own testimony. He was running wild. He was drinking. He was partying. He was taking every advantage in the flesh. Like Paul warns about in chapter 8 of Romans, he was taking every advantage in the flesh, filling that flesh up as much as he possibly can. Uh, took full advantage of the fact that it was, a, it was an era back then of, of love and, and uh, free love, free booze, and free drugs. And he took every advantage of it. And through a series of circumstances and actually... The, the, his daughter, who, by the way, her name is Phyllis. Uh, I found that was interesting. But her son was given a free DNA test. So he took it. And he noticed a lot of indiscrepancies. So he talked to his mom. She had always felt that maybe her dad was not her dad. In fact, even her siblings thought that. She was just different. She, was, she didn't quite look the same. She didn't look like her mom. Didn't look like her dad. Long story short... She went ahead and did a DNA test, and through doing a bunch of research, she winnowed it down to the fact that, wow, Phil Robertson of Duck Dynasty of West Monroe, Louisiana, is her dad. And uh, long story short, I've listened to now several um, podcasts about it, and, and they are celebrating this. They're celebrating this event. And, uh, and, and the reason the family, the reason the family is able to, to, to move quickly, <laughs> uh, even though this has happened over the last several months, is the whole family, see, has transitioned over all these years. And it started with Kay, Phil's wife, who was a believer, who was obviously back then stressed out about her husband who was cheating him, cheating on her, and all of that, and constantly praying, guess what, Phil gets saved. And from the moment that Phil was saved, in that same year this little girl was born, he never knew her till just a couple months ago, in that same year his life has been totally different because he set his mind on the things of Christ. He set his mind on the things of the Spirit, that set the stage now for 45 years later finding out that they had another child. It's an indicator. It's an indicator. Number two, we have life and peace. We have life and peace. Verse 6. And we please God by living in the Spirit, the Word says. Verse 7. Because the carnal mind is it is in enmity with God, for it's not subject to the law of God, nor can it be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God, but the reverse is true as well. The reverse is true as well. Those who are in the flesh can't please God. Those who are in the Spirit can please God. And it's not because of the traps that we've talked about earlier. 
simply because we are his. We're in Christ. The fourth indicator that we have freedom from the power of sin is that the Spirit dwells in us. The Spirit dwells in us. We're just absolutely different than we used to be. Number five, the body is dead and the Spirit is alive. The body is dead, verse 10, because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And number six, that we have a new life to live here on earth. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. We have freedom from the power of sin. We have the freedom to live righteously and rightly here on earth. It's not an impossible task. But it can't be done in the flesh. It can't be done by our good efforts. It happens as we live in the Spirit on a moment-by-moment basis. Responding to what the Spirit says. Responding to, to, to His teaching us, Him guiding us, His counseling us moment-by-moment. So when temptation comes, you know what? We have an opportunity. We have an opportunity. We can say, nah, i got to have it. Or we can say, nope. No, not going there. My dad used to joke every time. I mean, he loved Fig Newton bars or the the little cookies. And I love Fig Newton bars, just FYI. But so we'd stop at a gas station. We'd be gone somewhere or whatever. Stop at a gas station. Ah, let's get some Fig Newton bars. And so we'd grab some. We're cruising down the road. We eat two or three apiece. And we're them Fig Newton bars, he says. I can resist anything but temptation he always said that when he was diving in for just a few more fig newton cookies it's funny and i i laugh about it but the reality is is that we can resist (laughs) temptation we resist temptation by living in christ by living by the spirit and notice that paul in that does not mince words about whether someone is or isn't a Christian. He doesn't mince any words. Halfway through verse 9, he says, Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he, small h, in other words, any of us or any human being, is not his, capital H. In other words, if you don't have the Spirit, you're not a believer. Paul doesn't, he doesn't make any bones about it. Well, I, well, I'm not sure. Ah, maybe they did or maybe they didn't accept Christ. We just never can really know is an often repeated Christian phrase. And, and, and I will say, to a small degree, that might be true. Sometimes we just don't know. But if we're around people long enough, we ought to know. Paul says the number one identifier of a believer is not how much money they give the church, not how much time and treasure is donated, not how much ministry is done, not how much worship is done, but whether they have the Spirit of Christ, whether they have the Holy Spirit in them. That's that's the plumb line. He doesn't mince any words. And if Christ is in you, he says, the body is dead because of sin goes on to say. The third area that I want to look at, that third freedom point, is freedom from the presence of sin. Verse 12, pick it up in verse 12. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if any of you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many are as led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Translated, Daddy, 
Daddy. Verse 16 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. This whole list of of identifiers and 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 things that we're that we are called into when we're called into Christ into this relationship with the Lord where we follow him but we can follow free from all of these fleshly traps that we're sons of God that we're adopted that we're heirs and joint heirs with Christ and yeah we're going to suffer with him also that we may be glorified or elevated. It's a look into the future. An eternity with Christ is an eternity free from the presence of sin. It's free from the presence of sin. So in chapter 8, just in the first 12 verses, we can see these three different ideas on the idea of being free from the penalty and from the power and also from the presence of sin. But how is freedom used by God to make us grow? I'll come back to that question. How is freedom used by God to grow us in our faith, to grow us spiritually? Freedom is used by God to strengthen us by breaking these chains, by opening the gate of our life to live how God wants us to live. He breaks these chains of sin that bind us down. Chains of sin that keep us locked up in repetitive patterns of pain, repetitive patterns of hurt, repetitive patterns of anger and frustration. It's the freedom we have in Christ as we live to commune with Him that builds spiritual muscle and stamina. If you spend much time on the farm at all, if you spend much time around uh, uh, baby calves, okay, little tiny guys, and, and especially if they're bottle-fed, guess what? It isn't going to take long that they're going to outgrow their pen. And they drink so much milk, they drink a gallon or two a day, and they grow and they grow, and you're thinking, man, this calf's getting huge, way too big for this little tiny pen that it's in. So eventually you scoop it up or you open the gate and you bring it into a bigger pen. You know what happens? That calf, regardless of its diet, it could actually have the same exact diet. But that baby calf is going to lose weight. It's going to lose weight on the basis of now it's free and all that bulk that it had was just fat and it needs to run and play and exercise and build muscle. So initially it's going to lose it's going to lose some beef, but it's going to put it back in muscle. And that's the same story for you and I. It's the same story about Phil Robertson who who shrank, if you will, a part of his testimony is that when he became a believer, he cashed in his whole life he used to run hard, party hard, carry on. He abandoned all of those guys, shut off their phone. They moved way out in the sticks. He got away from it all. And so he shrunk back to where it was him and his two boys and his wife, and he buried himself in the Bible and in believers around him. And you would think, man, he, he, he lost something here. Guess what now? 45 years, he's been on putting on spiritual muscle. 45 years, he's been putting on spiritual muscle that God used to then put that whole family on a platform where they could proclaim God's name and his glory. Put them on a, in, in a situation where 45 years as a, a prominent family in our culture, they can absorb this huge change of another child added to the family. And they, they love it. They love it. They see God's hand orchestrating in the whole thing, start to finish, even when it started when he was in sin. 
He said it's the only, this is a quote from him, it's the only good thing. He used to say for years in testimony when he spoke, nothing good ever happened from my sinful past. And he said the other day on the radio, this is the only good thing. I now have one good thing that God has used out of my sinful past. The same dynamic is true for us. We're going to suffer. We're going to struggle. The Bible says so. You know it's true. I know it's true for me. Are we building spiritual muscle? Are we growing in our faith by a life in the Spirit? It's the only way that it happens. It's the only way that it's true. It's the only way that it's pure. It's being brought into the family of God because the sons and becoming sons and daughters with new identities, that's what changes our lives. It compels us to put away the flesh and to live by the Spirit. Worship team, if you'll come on up. Late last night, I sat back down at the computer to add this into the end of my notes because I thought it was relevant. There's so much of a, 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 a push and a tendency to try to affect change from the outside in. It's true in our culture. Uh, unfortunately, it's true in the churches. That if we affect change on the outside, then there will be change on the inside. You know what? God doesn't parent us that way. We shouldn't parent that way. We should parent to the heart. God parents us, as it were, from the inside out. He's working on our hearts first, and knowing that by working on our hearts, that's going to affect outside change. The, the evidence will be true. The evidence will be sure that by changing our hearts, that effect on the outside will come. He's always changing us from the inside out. Don't get caught up in the trap of the flesh that attempts to change from the outside in. I'll pose this question as we close and as the worship team gathers for our last song. Who wants, to ch who wants God to change them? We, we have a whole nation that's calling for change in, in, in certain areas and in certain views. And I, I don't necessarily think that that's, those are bad things. But who wants God to change them from the inside out? And to dig in deep. It's a painful, uh, 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 it's a painful embrace at times. But it's a liberating embrace when God reaches in and grabs the heart. When he reached inside and grabbed the heart of this <laughs> rebellious 18, 19 year old kid. And changed my heart. And as it started to happen, as it, was, as it was moving forward, there was massive pushback. I'm not going to joke. I'm not going to kid you guys about that. The enemy no more wanted me to follow Christ as anybody else. But a good friend of mine said, hey, I want you to read two books. Not, sec not secular books either. He said, read the book of the Gospel of John and read the book of Romans. And it was getting into Romans chapter 8 where I finally saw for the first time that I could lay aside my hypocritical tendencies, all of these fleshly traps, and be free to live the way God intended me to live. And it's taken all these years. It's, it's, it's not... You don't get the massive 100 meg download the first day. Let me just warn you. It's a lifetime of, of bumping into it and sometimes a step back and a two steps forward process. But God is right there. He's faithful. He's faithful to you and he's faithful to me. And I want that change. And I still want that change. So I'm asking all of us, who wants that kind of change in their life. Who wants to embrace that type of freedom in every area 
of our lives. I do. Right? I do. I'm going to go first. I'll stand up first. I'll put my hand up first. Who wants that? I want it. I want you to know that the front's always open for prayer. There's nothing like super extra spiritual about coming to the front. But it does do this. It does, as you stand up, and I've seen you guys do it year after year after year, as you stand up and come to the front for prayer, you're proclaiming, God, I want more of you. I want more of your control in my life. I need you. I'm dependent upon you. Perhaps you're thinking, I need some freedom in a few areas. Maybe it's in your finances. Maybe it's in your, 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 your marriage is, is, is bogged down and, and, and you need something, a catalyst to move your marriage out of the mud. And so many marriages around, so many marriages around are really hurting and struggling. Some are failing. Maybe it's raising your kids. I get it. I get it. I understand it. And there's something there that, 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 that is a block and has always been a block. And you need to be set free from that thing. God says you can be free. You can be free from that trap. You can be free from that mindset. Maybe it's in some other area, a relationship, or work, or you name it. I I, I, I'm not a mind reader. I just know that it's true for me. And if it's true for, true for me, it's just a regular dude. It's true for all of us. There's areas where we're tempted to be trapped. And I'm here to tell you that the greatest chapter in the Bible, Romans chapter 8, says you can be free. You can be free from those sins. You can live in freedom, and you do it by life in the Spirit. Front's always open. We'd love to pray for you. The elders would come and pray. If you sense that somebody comes up to the front and you want to go pray for them, awesome. Be a family. Be God's family today. Let's follow Him together.